listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast that features interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm your host, Mike Costa of Costa Media Advisors. My guest this week is Jay Kennemer. Jay grew up in Gunnersville, Alabama, and graduated from the Baylor School here in Chattanooga. He went on to the University of Alabama, where he earned his BS degree. Jay got a JD at Cumberland School of Law and his master's in tax at Emory. Jay is a partner in the McMahon Law Firm. He has tried the second most cases as a plaintiff attorney in the state of Tennessee in the last 18 years. He is Chattanooga's most prolific trial attorney. Jay, welcome to My Morning Cup. Before we get into why you have a passion for representing the underdog, let me ask, what's in your morning cup? Right now, a little water, but I had my two cups of coffee already today. How you take it? All black. Fully caffeinated. Yeah, I guess my day started. Um, you know, when I'm usually in the office early, I'm working away. So, Well, good. So you grew up in Gunnersville, but you came to school here at the Baylor School in Chattanooga. How did all that kind of transpire? Well, I was, uh, I think, in Carlisle Park Middle School in Gunnersville. The lowest grade I made was a 98, and the teachers came to my dad and said they needed to get me out of Marshall County. So they came up here, and we visited the Baylor, and Macaulay ended up going to Baylor and dormed Lupton for four years. Really enjoyed the experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. And then after uh, Baylor, went on to Alabama, really first in my family line that ever completed college, went into college. My dad did some, but really I'm the first one that graduated. Were you an Alabama fan before you went to the school, or did you become oh, one? Absolutely. Back in the seventh grade, I went to a Ken Staples football camp in Marion, Alabama for two years. You know, Back when Paul Feinbaum got yeah. famous for reporting on all the shenanigans that <laughs> went on there. And there's, he's absolutely right. <laughs> and there's a great picture of you and Ken Stabler in short shorts. Oh, gosh. His shorts were shorter than mine. And this is back in 78, 79. And that's back when our socks went up to our hip joints. We were styling. <laughs> but after uh, graduating from Baylor, I went, of course, the four years at Alabama. When I got there, due to Baylor education, I'll credit that, that I clipped out of just about everything for the first and second years of college. Then I'm all ready yeah. in junior year classes but trying to pledge at the same time nobody yeah. told me don't take a heavy load while you're pledging so i was always digging out of that first term should have retaken an easy load starting yeah. out but then got into uh cumberland law school I did well there and then after that i was deciding trying to decide what to do I was thinking, well, all my competition these days are scared to death of tax. I had submitted some applications. I was admitted to the University of Miami Law School and went down there and decided I did not want to go down there. Really? What was it about Miami that you didn't like? Usually when you're going to finish off your education somewhere, you're going to end up living there. Yeah, good point. And I decided I just wanted to come back, and I put in an application in Emory and yeah. accepted there. When you got done with that, you were a tax attorney? Yeah, I was ready to do reverse triangle C mergers, uh, parent sub liquidations, all those nice things. Big words, big fancy words. Yeah, I was just going to say, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the first job that opened up was up here in Chattanooga. I was only going to go to Chattanooga, Nashville, or Birmingham. Those were my three choices. And first job was here. I was happy to come back here because I knew the town, graduated from Baylor, and had a lot of friends, a lot of classmates still up here. So I was happy to come back. And who was the first job with? 
It was with a firm while and while, and it's actually what I'm doing now. I thought I was going to go into tax, but that opportunity opened up. And then I realized that there were more attorneys that were scared to death to try a jury trial than to practice tax. So long story short, we're several, what, 30 some odd years later, and I'm trying a heavy, heavy load because less than 2% of attorneys are board certified. And you have to have so many trials to become board certified. Do you like it and gravitate towards it? Because you have a passion in front of a jury or a judge in the courtroom, or did you recognize that as a path that others weren't taking and you felt you can fill a bigger need there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a large need here. There's so many cases that come to me now in boxes, and there's dust all over them, and they haven't been made or developed where it can be tried. And I've, you know, for instance, November 4 last, I had a 10-year-old case that was brought to me and it had a trial day coming up. And I said, well, I don't know why this thing's 10 years old and it had been tried before and lost. And it came back on appeal for a minor issue for retrial. And I retried it and got 400000 In state form, you would have thought they got slugged in the gut. <laughs> They were very upset about that result. But there's so many times that I'm inheriting things on the back end to take the ball across the finish line right now. A lot of times I'm happy to do it, but the workload is heavy. What attracted you to law when you decided, okay, I'm going to go to law school? It was literally a flip of the coin. Really? I was going to go take the MCAT for medical school, Uh or I was going to take the LSAT for law school. I literally flipped a coin and decided I was going to law school. So you made a life decision based on a... Based on that. That's right. It seems to have served you well. Well, it's worked out so far. (laughs) So far. We we have a new building there, Cherokee Boulevard. We just added another attorney. We have 10 attorneys here and something like 25, I think, right now, support staff. We have the largest Social Security Department of any Tennessee firm in the state. We're 133rd in the nation for recovering the most for Social Security. And I built that division up part of it myself, taking files home at night and not referring them out because it was silly to do so. And Social Security is really a morass of rabbit trails, isn't it, that the normal person can't really navigate without someone who knows where they're going? Well, it is tough. you got to know the listings, the grids, the catch-alls, and how to make sure your client's disabilities are shown to the administrative law judge in a way that he's got to approve them. To go back to, you got out of Emory, and what was the name of the firm? It was Wild and Wild. Wild and Wild. How long were you there? Six Six years, and then I was lured away with grand promises to this firm down in Huntsville because I had a Tennessee license and an Alabama license at the time. That's important in Huntsville. Oh, yeah, because they're on the Tennessee line also, and they wanted somebody with a business background or had all the tax because they had a lot of business clients. Found out after about two years that some of those promises weren't, weren't bonafide. Yeah. And in the middle of the night, came back and moved back up here, literally when the span of two weeks. Is that and, when you uh, hooked up with McMahon? Yeah, that's when I hooked up with John and went ahead and he started me out with uh, Income Partnership. And that's where you met Brent. Yeah, Brent is a fine trial lawyer, also probably one of the leading experts in this area for Tennessee Workers' Comp. I cover and oversaw the growing of the Social Security part of it. And, of course, we have a large tort practice going after the, well, the big insurance companies, the big nasties. 
So when you get there and you meet Brent and you're working together a bit, at what point did you guys get together and say, hey, we should partner up and buy this from John? Well, you know, it comes to the time that you realize that you're doing the majority of the gross revenue of the firm. And he was doing a like amount. And it was about time to go ahead and let John retire on his terms. Yeah. Or we were going to go someplace else. Those are just hard decisions you have to make. Was there a point when the two of you took over? You're building it and you said, what did we get ourselves into? <laughs> I mean, were there those points of frustration or concern? Well, when I was going through law school, I never thought that I would be on a commercial. And it turns out we've been protecting the borders here of Chattanooga pretty well as marketers get to see what you spend. And if they see a drop in our advertising, well, that's just opening the door. Yeah, they think it's an opportunity. Yeah. And I made that mistake when we first took over the reins. I was like, gosh, we're board certified. We're the 800-pound gorillas in this town. Why are we even having to worry about this expense? And then that cartoon guy out of Huntsville comes yeah. up here and starts. It's just opening the door. Yeah. And then some Birmingham firm that had dropped out years before then comes back and is littering our billboards all over the place. Mm. We're kind of held hostage, keeping a certain amount, because I keep this area clean. If I find that there's anything dirty in our area, I go after it. Explain what you mean by that. Well, for instance, the solicitors, the ones that were going to the police department and the city thought that they had to give them all the police reports from the day before, and they would walk in there with portable scanners and scan people's private information, call them right up afterwards. And there were four offenders here that they were using telemarketers and calling people saying that they were from the insurance company or they needed to go have this bogus treatment. And explain that a little bit in terms of the do's and don'ts of being a lawyer and the legal rules. They cannot go solicit, say, from the hospital bed. Well, there's a 30-day no-contact rule, which I applaud. There should not be a bunch of telephone calls the very next day with people trying to portray themselves as being on behalf of the other person's insurance company or they want you to do this or that, which is a lie. But there's a 30-day no-contact and. What we were finding was that we would set up a telemarketer to make these telephone calls to people to try to get them to go to the XYZ bad person. And XYZ bad person would already have the sign-up paperwork for some attorney. Now, that's just a scheme to get around the 30-day no-call rule. And so it's illegal. Figured it out. The city didn't have to give them the opportunity to go through people's police reports, which was happening all over the state. Yeah, They were going to police apartments and getting people's private information, calling them the day after a wreck. So I filed federal suit. I used a federal law that had not been used by them because I didn't really have standing. I had to have some drivers that complained about it. So I had enough clients that would complain about it. And one lady had a perfect case. I went in and filed that in federal court saying, no, 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 city, don't do that anymore. The city was actually upset that I filed that case. <laughs> I said, well, wait a minute, I'm doing you a favor. This is a gift. They don't get to go and pillage through the police reports and call people out of the blue when they don't need to be pressured or called or lied to. And um, within 18 days, we had an order filed concluding the case that said that they would not give out private information without authority. There has to have proof that whoever's asking has authority to do so. That They just can't go and pillage through the police reports anymore. And when that happened, I'm on the board for the Tennessee trial lawyers, and they called me up to Nashville to tell them how I did it. Then the next year, a legislator picked it up and 
proposed a bill that actually codified it and said, no, they can't get the private information anymore. A lot of work on your part. Speaking of a lot of work, I want to go back to board certified and talk about it in terms of career development. Small, small percentage of lawyers in Tennessee have board certification. You do, Brent does, but it's not something that you wake up and you go, oh, I'm going to get board certified tomorrow. Talk about the process because I want to tie that into career development, what you need to do to grow your career. Well, the public needs to appreciate what board certification by the National Board of Trial Advocacy really means. We get inundated by these bogus rewards. Anybody can come up and say, okay, top 100, make a plaque. Have you paid the $350 and, you know, super lawyers or Spider-Man lawyer or whatever? (laughs) I can make up one tomorrow. But the absolute hardest thing to get in our field is the board certification by the National Board of Trial Advocacy. And it's a long process. It's larger than the bar exam. The application, you've got to have so many trials. You've got to have so many depositions. You've got to have recommendations from defense attorneys. Yeah, your competitors. But as far as the application for board certification, it's pretty thick. You've got to have legal writings. You've got to have lectured to other attorneys, given CLEs, which I've done, Brent's done. So it's not just a matter of them saying, hey, we like you. Here's the plaque for $350. So if I woke up as a lawyer and said, I want to get board certified, how long would it take me? It's not a two-month process. It's years, isn't it? Yeah. Can't do it overnight. Exactly. You don't have numerous trials under your belt. You can't do it. Most attorneys don't have enough trials to... They're settling and moving on to the next case. Yeah, it's probably malpractice to do that now. All the major auto insurance companies are set up in some shape or form that they will not make a fair offer unless you go into litigation. One has a level of first-level adjusters that make ridiculous offers, so you have to file suit to get the second level, and they don't even know each other, so you have to file suit. All state let it be known that you had to... uh, Take a doctor's deposition before they're going to make anything in the area of a reasonable offer. Make sure I understand and the listeners understand, if you get in a wreck, that first offer is basically, here's somebody go away. Yeah, and they're doing something really nasty right now because people may not know the extent of their injuries. Mm-hmm. I had someone that had a fractured shoulder and didn't realize it till later on. But Progressive and State Forum have started calling people up and offering a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars just right off the bat and oh by the way we'll cover up to fifteen thousand in future medical then they realize hey i had to go get this mri and they said well we don't think it was necessary so we're not paying for it you guys are kind of like sherpas taking people the way to go as opposed to someone who just gets on the path and is led down the wrong way yeah we make sure we don't leave somebody dead frozen on the side of (laughs) mount everest on the way up that's right We'll actually carry them to the top. Well, that's good. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When you bring on a new attorney to the firm, what do you like to see them do in terms of career development? Well, we want them to try cases. You know, it takes a lot to get over that fear for a lot of attorneys. Is it the fear of being in front of people? Is it the fear of preparing and knowing you're ready? Explain that a little bit. Well, that... To me, speaking in front of 12 people, a judge, a court reporter, and the defense attorneys, and maybe the witness that's on the stand at the time. For new attorneys, a lot of times that scare them to death. Like a lot of things, you got to do it to get good at it. No doubt about it. What was your first trial? Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember my first trial. I was probably, well, it was 30 years ago, so I'm 
56 now, so I, see, I was 26 years old. You're a young kid. Yeah. It was against a local hotel that had propped up a bad sink with a 4 by 4 All right, so not not your recommended way to yeah. prop up a sink. It was a foot injury. I wish I had you know a replay of that trial because I'd probably get a good kick out of because it was my first one. I think it was the defense attorney's first one also. Oh, so great. We were fumbling through what we learned in evidence and so forth, and it turned out fairly well. Soon after that, I think that's when the new football stadium was being built, and I had a client that had a one acre that I think is on the 50-yard line, <laughs> and the city wanted it. I ended up trying that to a jury because you have the right to a jury for a condemnation case. I've handled many, many different types of cases, but now I'm really focused on the personal injury insurance cases. And you're, you're certified Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama? Yeah, I have law license, all three of them. I was 32 years in Alabama, 31 in Tennessee, and what's well, 2004 in Georgia to the present, so many years in each state. Is there a lot of variation between the states? Georgia is totally different when the claim in Alabama. Tennessee, we're blessed with pretty good laws in Tennessee that aren't ridiculous. Alabama has... You're not talking about the current legislature, are you? (laughs) Well, get me on the roll about the caps, because those are absolutely ridiculous. Let's put it in perspective. How can you cap non-economic damages at $750,000? You pay the doctor, that's an economic damage. But then that leg right there you've got, I'm going to pay you $750,000. I'm going to take that leg. You're going to take that check. Nobody in the state would. That's how ridiculous that law is. Right now, I've got one that is so catastrophic and so horrific that there's no way that person would, or any person, would take $750,000 and go through the pain and suffering and disguise and the loss that this guy's going to have. Yeah. With the amount of medicals, future medicals, so forth, that doesn't fit in the cap. What I'm talking about is the pain and suffering decrease in quality of life. Let's just say that you're a young fellow and you're a sole wage earner. You're taking care of your family, and all of a sudden someone wipes you out in a crosswalk, and now you're never going to work again, and they've taken chunks of your body off. Would any reasonable person take no. that? That was the most ridiculous thing of pushing the caps, and it was made so partisan and political. We're already polarized, but yeah. when we get polarized to the point that we will choose something that just absolutely doesn't make sense. We need to come back to the center. We're not in a good spot. Yeah. Not at all. Obviously, you've got a passion for not just that, but law in general. I do want to go back and visit something. You talked about keeping this area clean, and you were talking about lawyers, but you also have a reputation as being a guy on a weekend who takes a plastic (laughs) bag and a safety vest, and you go pick up trash on the side of the road. Well. I live up on Signal and going up and down the mountain there, Taft Highway, and I just can't understand how people can just roll down a window and throw out their lunch. It's just the most inconsiderate thing that I can absolutely fathom that people would do on their way to or from work. And we're known as the scenic city. Yeah, correct, (laughs) correct. So at some point, it just got to be neurotic for me. I would get home and take off the suit, and I was like, somebody (laughs) dumped something halfway down the mountain. I can't stand looking at it. Well, I got so frustrated doing the whole thing that I decided it was time to uh, limit it. So right now, I just pick up Shell Creek Park on my way in, way back. But you're doing it. 
Yeah. And I'll see roads every now and then that are just in horrible condition. And I'll put out there, you know, off each person $200, whoever shows up. And I did that on, I think the highway was 108 going up the mountain over there at Whitwell. Because I was going over there to meet with someone, drove up that what should be just a wonderful, and it was horrid. It was horrid. So I decided to go ahead and bite the bullet and put an investment, see if we can start it back in the right direction. Edwards Point, back on the back of Sigma Mountain, I've cleaned that up several times. When I can't do it, I'll get people to uh, do the ones around the, the tunnels there at um, Fraser. Yeah. You know, it's just amazing to me how someone can be so inconsiderate that they would just roll down the window and throw crap out on the roadway when there's a garbage can at every yeah, <laughs> convenience I, I, I don't store. You know, you can pull in just, and that's what those are there for. I'd even kicked around the idea of doing something like Four Ocean. Have you ever seen Four Oceans? Some guys down in Miami that they take donations and they go and hire local mm-hmm. kids and they pick up plastic on the beaches and do that. Why couldn't something like that happen in Hamilton County? We'd just find an office somewhere, start a charity, and then take donations, which if someone wanted to sell me a hat yeah. for about $20 more than what it cost, and it was going to result in some kid getting some work over the summer, picking up trash. Sounds you know, like a good solution. That's a, yeah. that's a framework that could work in every county. It'll save the county money, too. Yeah. Then you're putting kids to work uh, when mm-hmm. they're out of school. And idle hands. Yep. Gets them a little bit of money and keeps them out of trouble because if they're picking up trash, they're not doing some of the other things that'll get them into trouble. I know hundreds of people that would gladly give a little bit of money if it meant that some kids were going to get a job and get out there and pick up. Well, it sounds like we have a project ahead of us. Well, that's something that could happen. I've been kicking that around. Well, speaking of that, about 10 years ago, we talked about your passion to do something to help people. Talk about pay it forward and what that means to you. Not just the McMahon Law Firm, but what it means to you personally and how it really elevates the unsung heroes. I think it was about that time some things were going on in the media, and I was like, we've got to do something in Chattanooga, not only to win back the hearts and minds of the community, but also to educate them. Yeah. And I think we started that out at about the same time. That's when we started doing uh, this and that, where we tell about the topics of the week, of things that people need to know about. what's going on from a legal standpoint. But then also, that's when I called that meeting with y'all. Y'all did not know what I wanted to do. And I said, listen, we want to start doing something that's going to make the community feel good. It's not just about us. It's about having someone recognizing their incredible hardship that they've gone through or incredible deeds that they've done to help the community. That's bringing out the good in the community. It's not showing the latest train wreck. Or who just got arrested for shooting whom. So trying to bring out a little bit more of the good in the area and and shining a spotlight on it. And uh, the pay it forward, you actually brought that topic up when I suggested what I was looking for and said some of your sister stations said that. Yeah, it was was being done across the country. But you know what? It was a good fit. I don't want to take credit for it. It was something we had that was a good fit. But your McMahon Law Firm support has made it what it is. It's going on 10 years quarter million dollars and that's a heartwarming story at yeah. 6 30 every monday. every monday night yeah. yeah it works out well not just for the nominators but for the people that are nominated that receive yeah. the award and the recognition you don't just hit them warm their hearts and make them feel good certainly they've done things they should feel good on their own right but we're just shining a spotlight on it 
And yeah. so in the community, people can build on that. And to your point, what makes news is the negative. And to have a set positive story about your community every week to highlight people who don't get highlighted, they're quietly doing these things, not expecting any recognition. And then the camera shows up and gives them $500. And, and the other thing I think that makes it a great feature is McMahon Law Firm participates in it. McMahon Law Firm sponsors it and is recognized. But you and Brent are only there on special occasions. The focus is on the people. Absolutely. We didn't want to make it all about us. We like to, um, on the anniversaries, we'll be there. And you always Certainly. do a little bit more on the anniversaries, too. Oh, gosh, yeah. If you can listen to Skylar Bates, our fourth anniversary, yeah. if you can go through that one with a dry eye, <laughs> you're a stronger man than I am. Yeah. The anniversaries, we go a little bit above and beyond, and we still try not to make it about us. If I could drop all the commercials and all that, which I can't because yeah. we're kind of held at bay keeping the Atlanta hacks and the Birmingham or the Memphis, the ones they are waiting for the guard to drop, to come in and litter our billboards <laughs> with little or no experience in the courtroom. There's some amazing stories, and that would be a, something for another time. But if I could do just the pay it for it, I'd do just the pay yeah. it for it. It's a great feature for you guys, and I'm really glad you're associated with it. I do have one last question for you, but before I ask, I do want to remind our listeners, if you've made it this far in the podcast and you like what you're hearing, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you have a new conversation every Monday morning. All right, last question, Jay. What would you tell your 25-year-old self about what's really important for a happy life? Well, probably not be a workaholic like I was. If there's one regret, I spent too much time at the office. That's just reality. There needs to be a fair balance between professional and personal life. Some professions, though, don't afford you that. Now, I knew that I wanted to, uh, wherever I was practicing, have the biggest and the best firm. I think I've got that. So all uh, that workaholic paid off, but you also look back and say, well, maybe I could have had a little more balance. Yeah, and maybe someday I'll slow down a little bit, but I'm still a workaholic when I'm in town. Oh, I know. <laughs> I have a beach house that I like to skate to every now and then, but if I'm in town, I'm working every weekend. I know where to find you on the weekends. I just drive down Cherokee Boulevard. And I say that blue grand <laughs> Jeep Cherokee is sitting there, and that's me. I know it. Well, Jay, this has been fascinating. You're definitely an interesting person, but you're also a genuine guy, and I appreciate your friendship. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.